Good morning, once again. Well, I have the wonderful privilege of inviting you all to our time of fellowship and fun and food at 4.30 for uh, what we call a potluck. Just bring your best dish and let's uh, share it all together and enjoy the meal. And then about 6 o'clock we're going to get back in here to the sanctuary and have our night of worship. And our night of worship is going to be led by two or more. So those of you that were here last year and, and, uh, and enjoy that, we, uh, uh, we urge you that... Uh, you're going to be blessed once again. Uh, we urge you to come and, and uh, be a part of that. And if you didn't sign up, it's okay. It's, uh, you know, we, we, we try to get an idea of how many people are signing up to bring stuff. But uh, if you didn't sign up, it's all right. You can still come. You know, that, uh, we, 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 we want your food. And, uh, and we want to eat it. So, <laughs> so bring it. And uh, we want to enjoy it and uh, appreciate it. And uh, be all excited about what you've done. And, uh, and even if it's a box that says KFC on it, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll give you the credit for how good it's going to be. But uh, the important thing is just get together with us and get, come on and, and enjoy the time. But uh, again, uh, we, we urge you to stay for the, for the night of worship. We call it a night of worship, but I know that 6 o'clock the sun's still shining, but that's all right. We, uh, we want to uh, really praise the Lord together. And uh, what, a, what a joy that uh, the Lord has, uh, uh, has brought... Uh, uh, two or more back to El Paso. It's always a, a blessing to have them with us. So, it's time to turn to Genesis chapter 39, so let's do that. Genesis 39. Now you'll notice that last week, if you were here last week, you'll, you, if you noticed, you will have seen that we didn't have the, our normal slide up there, which I thought was up there on studies in the life of Joseph. And uh, that's because uh, it's part of the study of of Joseph, but um, it was about Judah, the brother of Joseph, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And where we might have thought that that particular account or that story was really inconsequential, uh, to the story of Joseph, it is very consequential. Very necessary to have had chapter 38 before we get to chapter 39. There are two very difficult passages. As a matter of fact, last night I told somebody on, on my way out, I said, boy, I'm sure glad we're getting, coming to the end of these two particular chapters. Because so much focus usually in these two chapters are all about all these sexual sins that are taking place. And sometimes we fail to realize the deeper spiritual meaning of of what the lesson is that the Lord would have us to to understand and to know about about the character of the person of Joseph who is actually a tremendous type of Christ throughout his life for us. So in chapter 39, we're going to look at the story of Joseph now in Egypt. Egypt. Of course, where we were before is that uh, here Joseph was uh, hated by his brothers who actually had a desire to kill him. But because of two brothers, Reuben and Judah, uh, Joseph wasn't killed, but he was sold into slavery. He was sold to the Ishmaelites who eventually sold him to a man named Potiphar who we're going to meet here in just a moment. So now we find that Joseph has traveled a long distance from his home, a long distance from his family, his loved ones, his friends, the things that he was used to, the things that he loved. And now he's in a strange place, in a strange land, with strange customs. We begin in verse 1 that says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, oftentimes tell you to make sure you mark your Bibles about a few things. This is one verse of Scripture that you want to mark or highlight. 
But especially this first phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. But please understand that he was not successful in the worldly or uh, secular sense. Or how the world sees success. He was a successful man because the Lord was with him. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. That's, that's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. And that's just a statement that says, you know, he committed so much responsibility and, and, and really so much trust into the hands of Joseph that he, you know, he just let him run everything. And if he, if he knew that he had anything, he had some bread to eat. <laughs> so Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, why is that little phrase there? Well, it's there because of all of what's going to take place from verse 7 on. So please remember that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I mentioned last time that the account of Judah and Tamar in chapter 38 was inserted into the story of Joseph's life to contrast the immoral character of Judah at the time of his vulnerability with the character or the moral character of Joseph when faced with grave temptation in Egypt. I mean, it's a tremendous contrast. So that's why chapter 38 really was necessary. Because the darkness of Judah's heart at that time, and and we're thankful for what happened to Judah's life afterwards, but at the moment of his vulnerability, there was such a darkness that the great contrast of of Joseph's life and Joseph's character and Joseph's uh, morality, as it were, really shines forth in chapter 39. So may I say then, immediately, that Egypt has always served theologically as a type of the world. And I mention that because realizing that Joseph serves throughout the last section of the book of Genesis as a type of Jesus Christ should cause us to examine the text for these occurrences that point us to fulfillments in the Gospels. And what I mean by that is that we should examine carefully everything about the life of Joseph because we're going to begin to see many different things that are going to point us to the life of Jesus in the Gospels. So when, when, we, when we last saw Joseph, the son of Jacob, he had spoken to his brothers and his father about two dreams that he had obviously received from God. One dream showed his 11 brothers bowing down before him and the other had his mother, father and brothers bowing down before him. Uh, there were str- strange dreams for him to say what he said. And of course, his, his family thought that he was really being arrogant and saying, you know, well, you all are going to bow down to me. But I've already ex- explained that, you know, this is, this is giving us a picture of what is going to be taking place later on in the book of Genesis here at the end. Where there's, a, gonna be, there's going to be a tremendous famine in the land. Of course, Joseph has already been sold. The father thinks he's dead. But Joseph has gone down to Egypt, and in the plan of God, Joseph is going to rise to be the second in command in, 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 uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the family is going to be seeking some means of, of, of staying alive, and, they, and so they go to Egypt, the brothers do, to be confronted by the second in command, who is their brother Joseph, who they will bow down to. Joseph may not know the full full idea, full understanding of these dreams, yet he knows that they need to be fulfilled by God in his life. So we see up to this point that Joseph has nothing much to say. 
It's a reality that tells us that Joseph is not complaining or arguing or, or worried about what's going on in his life. He's human, certainly he probably has concerns. Like any of us would have concerns. But he says nothing. Because as a type of Christ, we realize that he fits that, that picture of Christ who it says in the scriptures was as a sheep led to slaughter. Never saying a word. Well, getting back to Joseph's life, his brothers certainly didn't like what they heard. And they hated him for it. They were envious of what the Lord was doing in his life and that envy was going to eat at them and eat at them and eat at them. And I I know that those of us who have experienced envy and probably most of us have in some way, shape or form, it eats at us if we continue to let it fester in our hearts. So now we have to remember that Joseph came... From a highly dysfunctional family. I mean, today we might call it a blended family. Twelve brothers were born to four different mothers or of four different mothers. And and the brothers were always fighting in some way. Uh, They were highly volatile. I mean, when their sister was uh, violated, they went and killed a whole city of men. About the only thing that united his brothers was their hatred. Of Joseph. So Joseph's brothers had actually planned to kill him, but their greed overcame their hatred long enough for Judah to say to them, as we see back in chapter 37, verses 26 and 27, he said, What profit is it, or what profit is there, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let, our, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Well, that sounds kind of nice, but it's, <laughs> he's still wicked in what he's saying. And his brothers listened. So they soaked Joseph's cherished coat in goat's blood. And they, and they brought it back to their father, Jacob. And they, and they watched callously as their father cried out in anguish. They, he, he, he tore his garments and he, and he mourned for days. I mean, these are heartless sons to do that to their father. Knowing all the while that Joseph is alive, possibly somewhere, but not really knowing if along the way he may die. So, with brothers like that, Joseph didn't need any enemies, did he? But then comes that reminder of what it says in the Gospel of John about Jesus. In verse 11 of chapter 1, He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. A type of Christ in the life of Joseph. We now find Joseph in Egypt, and historically Egypt had already become a great nation before Joseph had been born. The Egyptians had already built their famous pyramids, the Sphinx, and the temple at Luxor, which not much of it is left really anymore. But in those days as it is today, Egypt was actually considered a tourist paradise. But, of course, Joseph wasn't there as a tourist. He was there as a slave. This is a good time to mention that with Joseph, garments are real important. He had that coat that we see stated in English, the the coat of many colors, which was actually a very uh, regal robe, a robe of, of royalty, a robe of authority that was given to him by Jacob. A robe that was really to designate a, a, a birthright that should have been given to other brothers, but wasn't. And that's why the brothers were envious, and that's why they were jealous of him, and that's why they hated him. 
So Joseph is, is always tied to some garment, you see. But now that garment was taken away and it was filled with goat's blood to, to, you know, to deceive their father. So Joseph went from wearing a garment of, of, of praise, as it were, a garment of authority, to a garment of a slave. And now he is this slave in the house of a man named Potiphar, who is, is a captain of the guard for Pharaoh. More than likely equivalent to that of a chief of police or even the head of, of Pharaoh's secret service. Nonetheless, the chief law enforcement officer of, of Egypt. His position made him a highly trusted official in the government of Egypt. And then Potiphar's name is also tied into the Egyptian religious system, for it means devoted to the sun. And we all know, if we've studied any bit of Egyptian history, that one of the uh, deities for the Egyptians was Ra, the sun god, as it were. Another name was On. But to show the reliability of Scripture as well, there, 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 is a, there is a historical context in which Joseph and his family fits. And that would be that uh, the Pharaoh at the time would have probably been Sesostris, or he was known also as Senusret II, who ruled in Egypt from 1897 B.C. to 1879 B.C., about 12 years it is within that time that Jacob's family and Joseph in particular was living. Now, Joseph had been ripped from his home and his friends dragged across the desert to a land that he'd never known, surrounded by a strange people who spoke a language that he couldn't understand. And even if he could have gotten away from his slave owner, he probably couldn't have found his way home. At 17, he'd lost everything that he'd loved and considered important, and now he lives at the whim of his master. He's the lowest form of life in the nation of Egypt. He has nothing, he owns nothing, he is nothing. I mean, that's, that's the legacy of a, of a slave, isn't it? He has nothing, he owns nothing, he is nothing. As a slave, he has no rights, he has no status, and he has no value. That's pretty low. But Joseph did have one thing that the other slaves in Egypt didn't have. He had a God who cared for him. He had a God who cared for him and a God who said to him, I'm going to be with you. I'm sure at some time he knew that God was with him. And I believe that he was with him not just in Egypt, but that he was with him back when his brothers were wanting to kill him. And God was with him before he even stated the dreams that he gave to his brothers. Joseph's life was unique because he truly trusted in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he had a God that truly was concerned with all of his needs. This is why in verses 2 and 3 of our text it says, The Lord was with Joseph. With him. It's, it's, something, it's, it's a connection that we ourselves can appreciate because the Lord Jesus said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you to the, even to the end of the age. How is He with us? He said that the Spirit of the Lord would, become, would, be along, would come to be alongside of us. He would be upon us and He would be in us. What a blessing it is for us to have the presence of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in this we see that the Lord was with Joseph. We see it, we saw it in, in the very life of Jesus when we compared this, you know, this, this uh, uh, typology. That in Jesus himself, when Jesus was taken to the river of Jordan by John to, to baptize him, Jesus was the one who came to John and said, baptize me. I should be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. But what is it that, that happens when Jesus enters into the water and then gets baptized and comes, rises out of the water? There comes that, that, uh, that dove that, 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 that alights near him or above, above him and, and the voice of, of God speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's a reminder to us that, that Jesus was certainly a part of the Godhead, but he was not alone. 
The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. Not as the world sees success. Because the world doesn't understand this. That he was a successful man because the Lord was with him. Do you want to consider yourself as a successful person? Then realize this. Let the Lord be with you. Recognize that he's with you. Acknowledge that he's with you. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and following. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all His ways and He'll direct your paths. When God directs our paths, we're successful, aren't we? And this is something that we need to realize in our own lives. Verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord was with him. That, that shows that Joseph had a testimony in his life. The testimony that God was with him. This is what gave witness to the very fact that Joseph was a successful man. God was with him. I mean, here's a, here's a sun worshiper looking and saying, man, he's got a God that he truly believes in. He's got a God that he speaks to and answers him. The Lord was with him. His master saw that and that the Lord made, him all, uh, made all that he did to prosper in his hand. You see, there is this great knowledge that the Lord never abandoned Joseph even in the least way. And I can tell you this, that when you trust in the Lord, He will not abandon you no matter what you are facing. No matter what kind of trial you have to deal with. No matter what kind of tragedy you might have to go through. The Lord said, I'm going to be with you. You can trust in me. As a slave, the Lord made him the most successful of all the slaves. Now, how, much, how many more zeros can you add to Joseph's income as a slave? If that's what success is all about. See, we're always concerned about what happens, you know, to the left of, uh, of, the, of the decimal point in our checks, right? But when you're a slave, you get more of the zeros on the other side. Do you understand? And yet he was the most successful of the, of the slaves because it wasn't about money. It's not about that with the Lord. That success would spill over into the house of his master Potiphar, the sun-worshipping lawman, who also noticed that Joseph's God was with him, and hence he noticed that he was a real God. The sun could never do anything for him, but he sees what Joseph's God did through him. And it blessed his own house. It was a testimony. In Joseph's trust, he saw. In his diligent work, he saw it. And in the obvious blessings from his God, he saw it. Others should see the real difference that the Lord Jesus Christ makes in our lives by the way that we trust the Lord and by the way that we work for the Lord wherever we are and whatever we do. Whatever it is that you do from 9 to 5 on a daily basis, if you don't do that unto the Lord first, you won't really understand what it means to be a success as a believer in Jesus Christ. Does this remind you of how often we might complain that the Lord has put us in a terrible or a difficult place? I'm not looking at anybody. If I don't look at myself first. I believe we've all done that. I believe we've all complained a little bit. I'll put it that way. We've complained a little bit. Lord, why did you put me in this situation? Why did you put this person in the, in the cubicle next to me? Huele, Señor, huele. That's some kind of complaint, you know. And yet God's will is. Now listen to this. God's will is that we trust Him to bless us and make us successful wherever we are. As God measures that success. Isn't it better to know how God measures success than us trying to define that in some way? 
Let's think ahead for just a moment to Joshua. What God says to Joshua after Moses dies and Joshua now is, is raised to the leadership in, in, in Israel. And you can read all of the first chapter, but I just want to start at verse 6 because God says directly to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only, he says, be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Now stop there for just a moment. This is halfway through the verse, by the way. And you stop there and you think that success has to begin, first of all, with our obedience to God's Word. Our obedience to God's will. Our obedience to God's law, as he will emphasize again in just a moment. He says, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And again, it isn't about prospering monetarily or financially or anything in this life that he's talking to him about. It is prospering in the things that God has placed before him. You are to go and you are to conquer this land and you are to to divide this land up for your people. As God commanded him to do that. But then he says again in verse 8, this book of the law. Now remember, the law has already been given to them because it was given to Moses. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. There's not one part of this Bible that is laid on your laps or on my desk here right now there's not one part of it that all of a sudden gets thrown out any, you know, and said, well, we don't have to believe what that says anymore. Because it is the full law. It is the complete law. It is everything that God has said for us as to how we are to live and how we are to be as people. And we aren't to mess with what God says. But we are to observe, to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And again, don't think in the terms of some preachers who tell you, you know, you should be driving what you want to drive and have as many cars and, you know, build all kinds of garages for your cars and and banks for your money and all kinds of stuff. No, no, no. You're missing the point. That's not what success is really about. What is success according to the Lord? Let's add a a New Testament perspective to it. Let's go to Colossians chapter... uh, Whoops, I forgot verse 9. Again, forget verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I can't forget that. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Well, that's success, isn't it? That's the kind of success we're dealing with. But now, if you go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17... This is what he says, therefore, now Paul says to the church, therefore as the elect of God, those that have been called by God, holy and beloved. By the way, don't forget that word holy. It means set apart for God. Set apart for God. Not set apart for your own schemes and whims. Set apart for God, holy and beloved. He says put on, and and those two words, it's talking really, it's like a garment. It's used... uh, really in the putting on of some kind of a garment, put on tender mercies. Be tender-hearted. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Where did we learn those things? From Jesus. We learned that from Jesus. Now don't make Jesus out to be some, you know, kind of weakling. He's not a weakling. He was strong. But his strength was founded in his mercies. Think about what he said in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Boy, we can trust in a 
in a, in a God, in a Lord that, that loves us that much. He becomes our strength. Because meekness is not weakness, folks. But then he goes on to say, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Now we like the other stuff, but boy, this stuff about bearing with other people, I don't know, Lord. I mean, look, they're pretty bad. See, we start judging. And when we start judging, we don't, we don't forgive. And he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Even, if, well, he says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Notice it doesn't say you, you also might consider trying or doing. He says, no, you must do this. You must do this. You must forgive. You see the challenge now in being successful in the Lord. It's not easy. But above all these things, put on love. Again, uh, as a garment, put on the love of God, which is the bond of perfection. In other words, it, it, in other words, it is the glue of our completeness in Christ. And it takes us back to 1 Corinthians 13 that tells us, you know, that you know, love is patient and kind and, and so on and so forth and all of these things, all these wonderful qualities of, of love. And it says, uh, you know, Paul says, uh, you know, you have these three, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Holds us all together. And our completion in Christ. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. No matter what we go through as Christians, we should always be at peace with God and at peace in our hearts in the Lord. He says, let the peace of, the, of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. You know, I think people think that the only time you have to be thankful is on Thanksgiving. I'm thankful when it's over because there's too much food given on that day. You know, everybody's eating, you know. We're to be thankful every day. As a matter of fact, that should be part of our prayer on a daily basis. It's thankful for everything that God has given to us. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, just as you sang this morning. I hope you did. With grace in your hearts to the Lord, because you've let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. But here's the measure of success. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do all. Not just some. Not just whatever you pick and choose to do. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's that's success in God's standards. That's success in God's terms. That's success in the measure that God gives. And so in verses 4 through 6 of our text, back in Genesis, the Lord advances Joseph in the house of Potiphar because of his faithfulness even as a slave. And this blessed Potiphar's household as well. Now, here's another question. See, we need to continue to ask these questions to apply them in this story to our lives. The question is, do you want the place of your work to be blessed? Do you want the place of where you work to be blessed? Because if the place that you work, where you work in is blessed, you're going to be blessed. Do you want the place of your work to be blessed? Well, instead of being angry or complaining, which of course none of you here have ever done, Right? None of you have ever gotten really angry and complaining about your job situation, your job conditions. None of you. You all are so, such, good, such good employees, aren't you? Oh, no. Because I can bring up stuff. Let me just say this. Your boss, your cranky boss, your co-worker who you just can't stand, What about them? You see, and this is to all of us, let's listen. 
Instead of being angry or complaining or even doing a half-hearted job, because, you know, sometimes we want to get back at our bosses so we don't do what they tell us or we just do half of what they sell, tell us to do because we're going to get back at them. <laughs> right? Right? You know what we're supposed to do instead of that? Do your best work. Because who are you doing it for anyway, first and foremost? You do your best work because you're not doing it unto them, you're doing it unto the Lord. You do your best work because that is giving testimony that Christ is in your life and you are to give testimony of Him. Do your best work and pray for your job and pray for the people you work with. Are you praying for them? Because if you're praying for them, your place is going to be blessed. I don't have to tell you these things, but if I tell you them, I hope you do them. Because I believe that that's what's going to help. That may not help, you know, well, I prayed this morning, but nothing happened. Come on, what happened? Well, you know what? How about keep praying? Just pray one day and think it's just all going to like magic. It's not about a magic, it's about patience and waiting on the Lord. But I know some of you have testimonies. Once you started taking your eyes off of yourself and putting them on everybody else and praying for them, God started working. Any amens out there? I, I would hope so. I would hope so. So here's what we need to do. We need to allow godliness, allow godliness, allow godliness to flow from your life so that it will affect others. Now, I must say that godliness will prevail over evil, but it is not always easy. I'll tell you that right now. That's why I say this is something you have to continually do. Joseph didn't just pray one day and all of the things, you know, all of a sudden everything's blessed where he was working. No. It was a matter of time. It was a matter of trusting every day. Because every day there's a new challenge. Every day there's going to be a new challenge. Every day there's going to be unexpected events that you weren't aware that were going to happen, but they're going to happen. Where are you going to trust? You're going to get blinded by just looking at the event or looking at the tragedy or looking at the struggle or looking at the trial or looking at the temptation without looking first to the Lord who's the one who said, I'm going to be with you. So think about Joseph's situation again. By the way, I'm going to tell you that one more time. Think about Joseph's situation again. 17 years old, knowing nothing of the language in Egypt, knowing nothing of the customs or the culture of Egypt, and yet he not only learned them, but he did his daily work as well. He was a man that was more interested in bringing glory to his God than pouting over his situation. He was more interested in bringing glory to his God. And we need to become more interested in bringing glory to our God than putting or than pouting over our situations. Quit pouting. But with that kind of devotion, there follows temptations. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now the challenge begins. And it came to pass, verse 7, after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. You all understand what that is. Okay. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is, what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. In other words, again, he's committed all these things. He doesn't know what he has because he's, he's trusting me to take care of these things for him in this house. There is no one greater in this house than I. Now stop and don't think that he's boasting. This is not a boast. What he's saying is, I've been given great responsibility by Potiphar. I have more responsibility than all the other slaves in this house. 
nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. And I don't believe it's that Potiphar went to him and said, you can do anything you want in this whole house, but hey, she's my wife. I think he, he did not have to say that to Joseph because Joseph knew that this was his wife and not, you know, not anyone to, to mess with. How then, he says, and this is a tremendous statement, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's wickedness if I do what you want me to do with you. How can I do this against God? No, did you notice it doesn't say against Potiphar? It's against God. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. I kept persisting this time. Over day by day, every day. Come on. That he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and, and none of the men of the house was inside, which means they were outside, of course, that she caught him by his garment. Now she becomes physical. And she catches him by his garment saying, Lie with me, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Now you have to understand what this means. I'll try to be as, you know, as, as, as G as possible and not, you know, R here. What it means is when she held on to the garment and he ran, there was nothing else on him. Okay? It was more important for him to be pure and holy. And even if he had to experience the shame of his nakedness, he would not comply with Potiphar's wife or comply with her desires. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. Now who's she talking about? She's talking about Potiphar. She's complaining about her husband who brought this Hebrew into the house to mock them. Lie. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Lie. She had longing eyes and lying lips. And it happened when, when he heard that I, that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Another lie. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. I'm going to tell you this right now. We're talking about a law officer. I mean, we're talking about a lawman. We're talking about somebody who's an investigator, you know, knows all this stuff. He knows how to listen to people and know whether they're telling the truth or, t- or whether they're lying. And I'll boldly state that I believe that he is saying, or at least thinking that she's lying. And I'll give you one main reason. He knew the integrity of Joseph. But now he's caught in a situation. He's caught in a definite sort of situation. We'll get back to Potiphar in a second. Joseph's holiness. Joseph's holiness would not go unchallenged by his spiritual enemies. When he decided to put on the garment of holiness, because he not only had the slave's garment, before all of this he had put on a garment called the garment of holiness. When he decided to put on that garment of holiness, he was dressing for battle with the world, and with the devil. They would seek to entice his old carnal nature to sin, and so spiritual warfare ensued. Now, by the way, there's one piece of information I haven't mentioned about Potiphar. Back in verse 1, he is called an officer of Pharaoh. The ancient Hebrew word for officer could also be translated as eunuch. 
Now, if you're not sure what a eunuch is, let me just say that it was a common practice in ancient times that those who were highest in the royal courts were made eunuchs, which means that they were castrated to ensure loyalty to their pharaoh or to their king. Now, it seems odd that Potiphar, a eunuch, because most eunuchs did not marry, but it seems odd that Potiphar, a eunuch, would be married, but there are two things to consider. He may have been married before he was promoted to the post of captain of the guard. Or he may have married after his promotion for pride and dominance, but either way, and quite possibly, Mrs. Potiphar was summarily bored in this role. To have a husband who was a eunuch. So, think of the progression from that. But whatever the case, Joseph brought his thoughts captive to holiness. Joseph brought his thoughts captive to holiness. In other words, he refused to consider sin in his heart. He took definite steps to avoid being in situations in which he might be tempted. Now, I'm I'm sure most of us know 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It's a long verse, so I have it in two parts here. But here Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Praise God for that. It is much more important for us to run from those temptations than to succumb to them. It is much more important to run from them so that you might remain faithful to the Lord. You see. And Paul understood the struggle that man has with these issues and with these things that later on in the second letter that we have to the Corinthian church, in verse 3 of chapter 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, you know, our warfare is not in the, in the flesh itself. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down the strongholds, or pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, notice this phrase, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ bringing every thought into captivity. In other words, whatever thoughts that we have in the midst of temptations or trials, whatever thoughts we might have to go beyond the things that God would have us to do, He says we are to bring those thoughts into captivity. We are to lock them up, chain them up as it were, to the obedience of Christ. And again, it brings us to to, to think that we are to consider, we are to refuse to consider sin in our hearts. So we are to bring every thought into captivity and bind those thoughts to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Well, let's just, let's just put it this way, okay? So you'll, so you'll understand that last phrase, just in a very simple way. Being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. If you obey the Lord, you won't disobey Him. Simple. If you obey the Lord, you're not disobeying Him. You see. So what do we need to do every day? We need to be sure, we, we need to be sure as we're looking at the Word of God. Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Because I want to do what you want me to do. Because if I don't do that, then I'll be disobeying you. When Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife, she clutched something that was more than just a garment. She clutched something that was more than just a garment. She she had his career. She had his future. She had his reputation. All in her power. Because that's all he had, wasn't it? Or so she thought. She needed his permission. Do 
take hold of our, you know, to take, she, she, needed, she needed Joseph's permission. And he would not give it. The enemy wants to take hold of our careers, our futures, our reputations, but as Joseph could never have us without our consent. You see the challenge here. She could never have Joseph without his consent. And the world and our spiritual enemies could never have us without our consent. Well, they have to fight God because we don't belong to Him. We belong to the Lord. But because of this incident, Joseph became a prisoner. Because of this incident, Joseph became a prisoner. And I'd like to suggest that he was a prisoner of war. Spiritual warfare. Putting on the garment of personal holiness dressed him for battle against the world and against the devil. The other night, uh, Friday night, when the men got together, it was a blessing to be together. We, we, we looked at this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, he said, Paul said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord. In other words, don't, it's not being strong in yourself. It, there's no, no one here that has the strength to battle by themselves and in and, in and of themselves to, to battle the enemy. We have to be strong in the Lord because the Lord's already defeated the enemy, by the way. I, I hope you know that. But be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what we're battling today. And therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the, word, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God up to this point. It's all about the, the, these, these parts of, a, of, of armor that, that would go upon our bodies, mostly defensive, of course, the offensive weapon is the sword. But then Paul said in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And when you consider these particular pieces of the armor, you realize that every one of them speaks of some attribute or character or the, of the nature of Jesus Christ in our lives. He's our salvation. He's our righteousness. He's our peace. He's our, he's our good news. He's, 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 our, uh, he's our, the, the object of our faith. He's the belt of truth because He said, I am the truth. He is everything that we need, you see, in this life when we face all of the enemy's tactics. And there are plenty of them. Now we're going to see Joseph, and I'm going to kind of rush this, not rush it along, but try to get moving here. We see Joseph dressed in his garment of holiness, not just for battle, but also for buffetings. Buffetings. Simply beatings, but notice he's got to he's got to deal he's going to have to deal with what's going to come from Potiphar now because of what's happened. But look at verses 19 and 20 of our text. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, "Your servant did to me after this manner," that his anger was aroused. Now I want you to think about the uh, you know who it is that. Uh, toward who his anger is aroused at, okay? Let me say that better. I want you to think who the object of his anger might be. Because immediately we would think it was Joseph. Joseph messing with my wife. 
But is that the case? Let's, let's see. And then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Buffetings are the sufferings, the adversities, the troubles that you experience on account of your decision to put on the garment of holiness, your decision to follow after Jesus Christ. We all have to face those kinds of trials and persecutions. The Bible tells us we will because we're believers in Jesus Christ. They are inevitable, in other words. And when we are told that Potiphar's anger was aroused, we really aren't told who his anger was aroused against. But here's the thing. Potiphar was in a very difficult situation. His wife accused Joseph of trying to rape her, and yet he knew Joseph and his integrity. But he also knew his wife. And by the way, these things didn't happen in just days. We're going to see later on that the length of time that he spent with Potiphar was probably about 11 years before he goes to prison. So think about that. And think about the persistence of this woman, you know, to keep after Joseph. So this was probably not the first time that this has happened with his wife. But Potiphar had to do something. You see, he had to do something. And instead of putting Joseph to death, which was probably and more than likely the, the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the sentence for this kind of uh, act, especially towards somebody that, uh, that was married to a high official in the Egyptian government, instead, he's given a life sentence in prison. Because Potiphar had to do something. He could not believe that Joseph would do that against him. But here his wife is going on and on. Everybody is finding out about it. It's in the National Enquirer in Egypt, you know. And he had to do something. And it brings to mind the person of Pontius Pilate to me. When I think of this story, I think of Pontius Pilate and and, and uh, you know, the, the struggle that Pontius Pilate had to go through himself. I mean, I, he, he wasn't some great, you know, holy man or anything. I mean, he was a pretty rough person, you know. But when Jesus was brought to him, he didn't want to put him to death. He didn't think there was any legal grounds to do that. He was, he was just, to him, just a crazy guy. Just let him go. But the persistence of the, of the people that were coming after him, saying, you know, he must be put to death, put him to death, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He had to do something. Even his wife got in the picture and told him, he says, hey, listen, I had a dream, man. Don't, don't, don't be careful of what you do to this man. So he's hearing it from all sides. He had to do something. He wanted to release him and take Barabbas. And Barabbas was a greater threat from the standpoint of politics and military uh, issues in Rome. But instead the people cried for Barabbas to be set free and for Jesus to be hung on the cross. So Pontius Pilate washed his hands. He had to do something. And Potiphar, knowing the, 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 the integrity of Joseph, rather than kill him, he put him in prison. But Think about God's sovereignty now. Think about God's providence now. He could have been killed by his brothers. Right? Think of the situation that Joseph is in. His brothers throw him into a pit wanting to kill him. Instead, they make a profit off of him by selling him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites in turn make a profit off of Joseph by selling him in Egypt as a slave to Potiphar. Joseph serves Potiphar faithfully for those 11 years. We'll, we'll get to the accounting of that. And now is falsely accused of trying to rape his master's wife. Thus, he's thrown into a prison cell or a subterranean dungeon. And at this point, what would we say or feel? What would we say or feel if that is us? Would we say, what's the use? I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what I'm doing, but it must be wrong. It's just not worth trying to do what God wants me to do. Why am I in this situation? 
Would you please stop and listen to this next verse? But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. I want want you to understand that the Lord is not with Joseph to be Joseph's personal valet. He's not with Joseph uh, to be his, 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 his servant. No, Joseph is God's servant. But his master is with him. Because his master loves him. And his master is going to use him. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Everywhere Joseph goes. Have we even heard a peep from Joseph yet? We haven't heard a peep from him. And now he's found favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph and all the prisoners who were in the prison. I mean, this guy's like, whoa. Man, you're you're a great guy, Joseph. You'll be in charge of all of this. That could only happen by God's hand, couldn't it? Keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. This tells us that Joseph was not only faithful, uh, a faithful slave for Potiphar, but he was also a faithful prisoner. And the keeper of the prison, the man under Potiphar, elevated Joseph to a place of authority in the prison. Joseph did not give up because his situation was bad. He stayed strong because he had God's word and he had God's presence. And Joseph believed that what God had promised to him, the Lord was more than able to bring it to pass. He knew that those dreams were going to come to pass in some way or in some form. So he just continued to go along with God, wherever God took him, even if it was painful to him. He knew that God was going to have his way. And therefore, Joseph was in the very center of the will of God. Now, sometimes we don't even realize that we are in the center of the will of God because we're looking more at the circumstances than we're looking at the Lord who put us there. We need to start looking at the Lord and we need to start trusting Him to, to, to realize that even in the midst of our, our burdens and our pains and our struggles and afflictions, we're there as God's representative. And God wants to use you. And quit looking for other people to say, well, here, you know, you take it. No, no, no. It's time for you to step up. When you face a trial, you trust God. You go to Him. Remember Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know that all things work together. But we don't act like we know that all things work together. Do we? Sometimes we don't. I want, to, I want to add something to this thought of what's happening with Joseph in the life of Paul. Because before the end of his life, Paul writes to Timothy and he says to him in 2 Timothy 2 verses 8 through 10, he says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. In other words, when he says my gospel, he says my good news, the good news that I've been preaching about Jesus, for which I suffer trouble even as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm a threat to the Roman government, and they put me in these chains for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the word of God is not chained. The word of God itself is not something that you can contain or that you can bottle up and throw away. You cannot contain it or chain it or imprison it, the Word of God will do what it is going to do. And I, I, I will tell you this, I, I sometimes feel sorry for all of the Roman soldiers that were chained to Paul 
Because there always had to be a Roman soldier chained to Paul and they couldn't get away from Paul. Paul wasn't the prisoner. They were. And many of them came to know Jesus because they couldn't get away from Paul. And so he says, Therefore I endure all things. Folks, sometimes we we skim over that and don't realize what Paul is saying. I endure all things. This imprisonment, the beatings. If you've ever read about Paul throughout the scriptures, you need to start reading the, 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 the letters of Paul because he describes sometimes in great detail all of the struggles that he has endured, all of the pains and the hurts. I mean, being beaten and, and uh, cast away. And, I mean, all kinds of things happening to him. Even to the point of death, God raising him up and all. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Joseph endured. Paul endured. And don't forget what Jesus endured for us. We'll close with this because it's late now. Looking unto Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. Are you looking unto Jesus today? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross for you and for me, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus who for the joy. You see, there's no joy when you go through the trial. The joy is the strength that God gives you to endure. That is why it says in Nehemiah 8 verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Your strength to endure the trials of this life. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have a trial. Some of us have trials that we have to face tomorrow. We can't do anything about it this minute, so what can you do? Trust the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hand Him this trial and say, Lord, here it is. I can't do this without you, but I'm thankful that you have said to me, I am with you always. So Lord, I surrender. You win. You're in charge. Let God be in charge of your trial today. Let's pray.